Today on Know the Truth, a lesson from Philip DeCourcy. Here's an interesting thought. The Bible never tells us to fight sexual sin. It always tells us to flee it. Unless you've got engine coolant running through your veins and you've stopped being human, we need to beat a hasty retreat from contacts that could overwhelm us. We can all expect to face a variety of challenges as we go about our day, but when it comes to sinful desires, there are some we can fight and others we need to flee. Today on Know the Truth, Philip DeCourse reminds us of the sanctity of physical intimacy and gives practical advice for guarding against sexual sin. We're continuing a series in the book of Proverbs called That Makes Good Sense. Today's message is called Talking About the Birds and the Bees, Part 2. If you need to catch up on Part 1, go to ktt.org. Now, Here's Pastor Philip. A mother and daughter were watching a late night movie. It was one of those golden oldies which dated back to the mother's teenage years. The movie was a typical film of that era, which ended with the hero and his girl on the verge of a kiss. And as they moved together, the music came to a crescendo, the lights faded away, and the movie ended without the audience even seeing the kiss. The mother asked her daughter, what do you think of the way movies used to be? I think she was caught off guard by the daughter's reply. The reply came in these words, gee, mom, your movies end where ours begin. Few of us would dispute that, that sad reality, that sadder tragedy of the daughter's observation. Without doubt, ours is a culture on the move, morally speaking. And it might might be as bold and as brash to say that it is headed in the wrong direction. Folks, we are moving away from the truth that marriage is a one flesh relationship between one man and one woman for life. We are moving away from the truth that sex is a sacred act and a gift from God best enjoyed within biblical boundaries. We are moving away from the truth that immorality that is, sex other than God intended it, is morally wrong, is bad for us, has physical, psychological, social, and spiritual consequences. We're on the move in the wrong direction. We are moving away from the truth that public nakedness is demeaning, exploitive, and dangerous. We're moving away from the truth that sex is the culmination of the acts of leaving and cleaving between a husband and a wife, that sex and commitment go together. We are moving away from the truth that there is truth regarding moral behavior. Times have changed between that mother's generation and her daughter's generation. Our society has done a complete somersault when it comes to sexual belief and sexual behavior. Now, let me reinforce this in a very practical way. Let me show you the reality of what I'm talking about here. I'm going to go back to a a past edition of the TV guide 
which compared the situations of TV characters in the 90s to those in the 70s during what is commonly known as the family hour between 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock in the evening. Look at this comparison and, and see the shift, the seismic shift in our culture regarding moral moors and uh, behavior and belief. Quote, this is a TV guide a couple of years back. In the 70s on the Brady Bunch, Greg feared telling his parents he racked the car. In the 90s on Mad About You, Paul's sister fears telling her parents she's a lesbian. In the 1970s on Happy Days, sharing some Cokes meant sipping cola through straws from the same glass. In the 90s on Beverly Hills, sharing some Coke means snorting an illegal substance through straws from the same mirror. In the 70s, on Little House on the Prairie, Laurie and Nellie, both eager to satisfy their hunger for sweets and candy, fought over the last cookie. In the 90s, on Friends, Monica and Rachel, both eager to satisfy their hunger for sex with their boyfriends, fight over the last condom. The times have changed, and certainly not for the better. The moral dike has been breached, a flood of perversity and promiscuity is sweeping this generation, threatening to submerge completely out of sight any notion of Christian marriage or normative decency standards for society as a whole. I think you know this, but I just want to remind you of the fact, my beloved, that um, you and I as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who are perfecting holiness and the fear of God, we are living in an actuated society. We're going to turn tomorrow into the teeth of a society that wants to devour our purity and shred our testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a society in which sexual orientation is simply a choice. This is a society that increasingly views marriage as a cultural relic. This is a society that advocates that morality is a private affair. This is a society where pornography is now adult entertainment. This is a society where moral judgment is viewed as a form of persecution. Now, before I go back into the context of Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, that you and I might find moral fortitude for the fight concerning our purity, I want us to think just for a few moments. So you are, a, are, are understanding what's going on around you. Like the tribe of Issachar, you have an understanding of your times. Why the shift? Why did the mother's movie end where it did? And why does the daughter's movie begin where it does? I think there is a philosophical factor and I think there's practical factors that accounts for this seismic shift. In terms of philosophical factors, this takes us into the arena of worldviews. That is how you frame your thinking. This is um, how you perceive things to be. What are the standards by which you'll live? What are the morals by which you'll act? <laughs> there's a theistic worldview that understands that God is above and beyond and within all that takes place, and therefore he must be the reference point for all that we see and perceive and do and think. That's a worldview. It's a theistic one, and it affects how you behave sexually. There's a humanistic, naturalistic worldview where there is no God. He's been expunged. And in that worldview, there are no absolutes. 
There are no moral mores that uh, are the measure for morality for all men. And that worldview, that ideology, that philosophy is the result of the hypothesis of evolution and the rise of the doctrine of relativism. Think about it. The end result of evolution is this, that there is no God. Man created God in his own image as a psychological crutch. There is no God, and therefore all things are permissible. Or the standards can be decided from generation to generation as the society see fits and gets comfortable with whatever is accepted. And so one thing's accepted in one generation, another thing can be accepted in another generation. There is no God. Man is the measure of all things. And the end result of that is, if you think about it, then all things are permissible. Our society hasn't thought long enough. If there's nothing wrong with homosexual love, is there anything wrong with pedophilia? Is there anything wrong with polygamy? Tell me why that's wrong and the other thing's right. Who decides that? Once the dike breaks, all things are permissible. Once there is no God and no moral absolutes, all behavior becomes normative or acceptable to some degree or another. In fact, it was interesting some years ago when I was reading um, James Kennedy's book, Lord of all, he makes this uh, interesting comment that Sir Julian Huxley, the grandson of Thomas Huxley, who popularized evolution during Darwin's day, said this, quote, I suppose the reason we all jumped at the origin of species was because the idea of God interfered with our sexual moors. You see what he's saying? If you can get rid of God, then you can kind of live the way you want, sexually, morally. I think there's not only philosophical factors, I think there are practical factors. And there are many, I've just got three here that I think are at least playing into this, this issue of increasing promiscuity and immorality in our culture. Number one, the advent of birth control drugs, which have lessened the risk for pregnancy. That's not a judgment necessarily on birth control. I'm just talking about the consequences of its availability. Such drugs hold out the possibility that should you want to, you can sin without consequences, which appeals to man's sin nature and depravity. I think too, the development of penicillin, which offered a remedy to life-threatening sexually transmitted diseases that once kept people from strain into adultery, homosexuality, and fornication. With the advent of penicillin, and drugs that curbed the problem of sexually transmitted diseases, people saw a path to sexual freedom. And so when you put those two factors together, people began to see the possibility of sex without children and sex without painful complications. And if you're bent towards sexual immorality, those two advents are very significant. Finally, on this just practical side of things, I think the influence of television is huge. Through immoral images and suggestive dialogue, television has been a significant means of corroding our culture's moral reason and moral resolve. Let's not be naive. Let's not be silly saints. These images that can be found 24 hours a day on our television 
make impressions on the photographic plates of our minds and those plates develop into thoughts which are, if unrestrained, morph into actions. Channels like HBO and MTV are polluting this young generation. It's naive not to believe that these images don't sear the conscience, don't stir up passions that should not be stirred up at this point. These factors are important. These philosophical shifts are having an impact. In fact, if you put these three factors together, you've got both the message and the means to sexual promiscuity. That's what makes Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 live beyond the fact that it is the eternal Word of God and that it is living. I want to hear what Solomon says to his son about the issue of the birds and the bees. I want to listen to Solomon as he writes out of a concern for his son's purity in a morally toxic environment. Because Solomon's day was a day that was um, overrun by sexual enticement and moral entrapment. Now, while things have changed, and I've already made that point, I would want you to think that the good old days were as good as you think they were. Because there's nothing new under the sun. There's not a temptation we're facing in this age that wasn't faced in previous ages. There's temptation common to all men. The degree by which that temptation can be felt can differ. And I think it's significant that Solomon's culture was as challenging to his son as modern America is to our children. Look at a few things here quickly. The covenant of marriage in Solomon's day was no longer sacred in the eyes of so many. Go back to chapter 2, verse 16. He speaks about the immoral woman. That's the Hebrew term for a strange woman, a foreigner. It's a metaphor for a woman who's living beyond the boundaries of God's law. She's within the borders of Israel, but she's a moral stranger. She's a moral foreigner. And Solomon's warning his son not to follow her or fall for her. And I want you to notice her recklessness when it comes to the covenant of marriage. He says, I'm speaking these things to deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Here's a woman who stood at a marriage altar one day, made some vows before God and her husband and the officiating ministry, and now she's into adultery. She's mocking the sanctity of marriage. And there were many women and there were many men just like her in the Israeli culture. And Solomon puts his son on warning about this fact. The covenant of marriage was no longer sacred. Secondly, love was increasingly defined in terms of casual sex without commitments of any kind. Go to chapter 7 now, verses 16 to 18. We've got a scene here. It's probably a little bit of a parable that is a picture of what has happened in so many young men's lives. This idiot of a boy goes to the wrong side of the city. He's uh, allured by this crafty woman with her deceptive heart and her flattering speech. But I want you to notice her words. She says to this boy, and remember, he's red-blooded, he's young, he's impressionable. And she says, I've spread my bed with tapestry, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Was it love? <laughs> Absolutely not. This was lust. 
This was sin, this was transgression, this was iniquity, this was moral impurity, but she has redefined this. Less like our culture. We talk about homosexual love. We talk about the love between a man and a child. We're redefining our moral understanding of what love is and what sex is meant to be. We're making the beautiful grotesque. We're making the grotesque beautiful. That was Solomon's day. It's our day, isn't it? Another interesting thought that comes out of this passage is this. Father gives his son a commentary on the society in which he's grown up in. Sex was being peddled publicly and promoted widely. Look at chapter 7, verse 12. At times, this woman was outside, at times in the open square, and she was lurking at every corner. You'd bump into sexual temptation wherever you went in this culture. That's the culture Solomon's son was growing up in. It was a moral minefield and no one was safe. That was the verse I was going to go to. Look at verse 26 of chapter 7. This woman has cast down many wounded and all who were slain by her were strong men. Wow. No one seemed to be safe from the allure and the entrapment of this woman. And so Solomon sits down to fortify his son and we said there are three things he says to his son. There was a call to submission. At the beginning of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 7, this man calls his son to submit to his words, which are God's words about sex and sexuality. We saw that the greatest sex organ in your body is your mind. Sex begins in the mind. Jesus teaches us that in Matthew 5. And where this temptation starts. That's where we've got to stop it. We looked at fortifying our minds and hearts with the Word of God, and that was the call to submission. But I want to move on. There's not only a call to submission, there was a call to separation. This is the second line of defense. Solomon wants his son to dodge the bullet of moral compromise, and he wants him to do this, or he at least wants to help him in this through encouraging him to put a distance between himself and sexual enticement. Look at uh, chapter 5 and verse 7. Therefore hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. There's the thought of submission to biblical teaching. Now we're moving on to the call to separation. Verse 8, remove your way from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one, lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and you mourn at last and your flesh and body be consumed. Same thought here in chapter 7, verse 7. And I saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner. He took the path to her house. And the point of that is, how stupid can you be? This young man was just walking into the line of fire. He seemed to be absolutely lacking in understanding towards the fact that he was walking towards a buzzsaw, morally speaking. And so now Solomon awakes his son and says, look, if you're going to keep yourself pure, if you're going to enjoy what God wants you to enjoy, then you've got to feed your mind with the Word of God, have theological reasons and arguments for why you're going to stay pure, and to help you in this, just watch where your feet goes. Build some hedges, erect some fences, 
beat a strategic retreat from the line of fire. You find yourself in a culture that is besieging you and therefore you need to watch the company you keep, the places you visit, the thoughts you entertain. In fact, you know what Solomon's telling his son? In the words of Paul and the rest of the New Testament apostles, be separated from the world. And I have defined many times for you what that means. It doesn't mean that he doesn't interact with people. It doesn't mean that he runs over the brow of the hill to some monastery for the rest of his life. It just means, son, when you're going about the city and you're out there in the big bad world, have your head screwed on. Get your periscope up. Try and anticipate, well, that's probably, I'll not go there. I'll watch that conversation. I'll take care of my thoughts in this context. I need to put a distance between myself and her, or I need to put a distance between myself and him. This is the call to separation. Here's an interesting thought. I want you to write this down and think about it. The Bible never tells us to fight sexual sin. It always tells us to flee it. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, we're told, flee sexual immorality, strong verb, flee, run for the hills. Put your Adidas on and make a hard run in the opposite direction. We read in 1 Timothy 2, verse 22, where Paul says to his young protege, Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Flee from the headstrong passions of youth, to put it more literally. And I think that's a great word of advice to all of us, myself included. Unless you've got engine coolant running through your veins, okay? And you've stopped being human. And you're now some kind of android with no feelings like Mr. Spock. Unless you have got to a state of sinlessness where temptation is something you're impervious to. And I don't believe any of us are anywhere with regards to any of those things. You and I need to be very careful. We need to beat a hasty retreat from contacts that could overwhelm us. It's a no-nonsense warning from Philip DeCourcy today on Know the Truth, a message titled Talking About the Birds and the Bees. The book of Proverbs is filled with practical wisdom for everyday life, and today's message covers just one topic in a series of messages from this Old Testament book. Over the past few weeks, we've discussed relevant themes such as raising kids, the value of hard work, the importance of friendship, and more. And we've made these messages available online in a series titled, That Makes Good Sense. You'll find them online at ktt.org. We hope you'll enjoy these biblical studies for living your life wisely and successfully. One of the ways Know the Truth shares the gospel with a world in need of truth is by providing helpful resources to our listeners. In this month, we've also hand-selected an encouraging book for our listeners titled, A Dozen Things God Did With Your Sin and Three Things He'll Never Do. This book explains the important difference between eternal union with God and experiential communion with Him, calling the reader to focus on the cross and remember that Christ has defeated our sins once and for all. When you give a generous one-time gift or sign up to give monthly as a Truth Ambassador, we'll send you a copy of this encouraging resource. As a listener-supported ministry, it's your gift that allows us to plan, produce, and distribute Know the Truth on the radio and Internet, reaching men and women all over the country with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're a vital part of this ministry. You can call 888-644-8811. 
Even easier, give online at ktt.org. And you can also write to us. Address your envelope to Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. And if you haven't already, be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just search for Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy and click like or follow. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Next time, we'll continue today's important message from Proverbs called Talking About the Birds and the Bees. Set aside another half hour Thursday for Philip DeCourcy and Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Mm-hmm.